Father, in a lot of places in our world this day, people will come together in little shanties and others with mud floors in their homes and others in small homes where the furniture has been moved aside. And others, dear God, in modest churches and some in great cathedrals. And what makes that worship, Lord, is your presence. And what causes that to be meaningful is that we are the recipients of your grace. From your perspective, our world must look very dark, Lord. But in each generation, you reach out your hand by grace and and you touch people and you change us from the inside out. And you call us into a personal relationship with you. And you do that uniquely through Jesus and through the powerful moving of your Holy Spirit. You've provided the way of salvation. You took on the form of your own son and you came and lived and then you died, not for anything that you did, but because of all of the things we've done. And then miraculously, you were raised from the dead with the promise that we, when we die, shall be raised from the dead and be with you. What a beautiful inheritance. What a way you have of demonstrating your love to us. And Father, we're here simply to say thank you. And to give praise to you because you're the one that has redeemed us. And because we're here today because of that grace. You'd think, Lord, with all of the grace and all of the blessings and all of the gifting and all of the talents and all of the opportunities that you've afforded us, that we'd get in lockstep with you. But that's just not how it is. Very often we go off on our own, Lord. We go off on a tangent and decide how we want things to be. And it's reminiscent of Adam and Eve. And we declare that we're going to do things our way. And sometimes, Lord, you prevent us. And sometimes you bring us under conviction. And sometimes, because it suits your purpose, you allow us to stray off for a while. But coming home to you is so sweet. To tell you we're sorry and to ask forgiveness and to get into lockstep with you again is always so desirable. Father, if we're toting a sin today, if there's something we're doing in our personal life that we shouldn't be doing, I pray that you would look into each one of us and bring us under conviction. And through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would help us to overcome that sin. And then make us mindful of the truth that through the shed blood of Jesus we are forgiven people. 
no matter what we've done, no matter how bad it is, the blood is sufficient to wash that sin away and to secure a place in heaven for us. Father, it's a beautiful message that you've given us and you've allowed us to experience it. And yet there are so many people in our families and so many people in our neighborhood and so many people in our communities and in our country and around the world who are living in utter spiritual darkness. So very limited by the scope of what they understand I pray, dear God, that you would use us to touch other people. I pray, dear God, for those who are in leadership positions who influence our culture, (coughs) that you would bring them under conviction and help them to see you as you really are and help them to respond to you. I pray, dear God, for folks in all branches of government. I pray for our business community and our educators. And and pray, dear God, that you would put it on their hearts to walk with you and to allow you to be the Lord of their life. And I pray that you'd use your church, not just here, but throughout the state and across the country, that we, dear God, might be a witness for you. Help us to quit looking like the world we live in and help us minister to this world, I pray. I thank you for our church. A lot of good things going on in our lives, Lord, and we thank you for that. Please help us to continue to grow up and to be the church you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. (coughs) I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Philippians, the first chapter, and we're going to start with the 21st verse. My mama and daddy told me never to partake of a beverage and not offer it to other folks. But if you'll excuse me, I'm not going to offer you any. (laughs) Philippians, the first chapter, we're going to begin with the 21st verse, and we're going to study through the 26th. Once you have found your place to Philippians 121, please put your finger in your Bible and look up. Let's pray. Father, this is a special time in the midst of our praise of you. It's a time, dear God, when we come to listen to you speak to us. To hear words that we know are trustworthy and true. Words that we can stake our life on. Words that influence our hope 
and our perseverance. Father, please open your word for us. And please, dear God, hear us as we call out and ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. I know all of you looked at the title to my sermon. You probably, with bated breath, every Sunday wait to look in the bulletin. And the title is, To Live and to Die. It's not very original. I got it out of the 21st verse. Paul says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. After I attached that title, I was sitting at my desk, and I remembered another title. Live and let die. Does that ring a bell? James Bond. Seventh or eighth James Bond movie. You know, James Bond has been with us for six decades. Three generations of Americans have grown up under that influence. Good-looking clothes. You notice none of them ever get portly? Attractive women. For once, I wish they would vary from that. But they don't. There's always a villain. And the villain has all kinds of attributes and all kinds of things at his disposal. But James Bond always prevails. Every time. And when he doesn't have the tools to meet the challenge, he calls on Q. And Q's always got something that's newfangled that'll save James Bond in an emergency. There's a philosophy of life embedded in 007. And it has influenced generation after generation. You know what the new American dream is? The new American dream is being like James Bond. And folks don't even realize it. It's to live right now and to have all of the pleasure in life and to live it to its fullest with no concern about the future. Do you believe that? Folks, that's the world we live in, and it has infiltrated the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's so subtle that most people don't realize it. And it's in such contradiction to what Paul is saying when he says to live as Christ and to die as gain. A couple of quotes. Ralph Waldo Emerson. He died in 1882. He said of life, With the past I have nothing to do, nor with the future I live for now. That's James Bond's philosophy. Go back just a few years during the Civil War, Henry David Thoreau died in 1862. He said of life, go confidently in the direction of your dreams. Live the life you have imagined. 
No suggestion that God has a better idea. It's all up to us to find fulfillment for our dreams, whatever they are. Well, those two gentlemen joined a movement called Transcendentalism that took place in the 1800s. It started up in New England. It started in the Congregational Church, a good denomination, a Christ-centered denomination. And what they were taught by those two men and others was to diminish the significance of Christ and increase the significance of man. And boy, has that caught on. And we're seeing the fruit of that in our society today. Let's not be concerned about Christ. Let's not be concerned about God. Let's not talk about eternal things. Let's just live for right now, and you've got everything you need to succeed. And that's the message that's coming across. Remember Cary Grant, the actor? He died in 1986. He said, my formula for living is quite simple. I get up in the morning and I go to bed at night, and in between I occupy myself as best I can. Isn't that shallow? If that's all there is to life, just trying to entertain yourself during the day? Audrey Hepburn, the actress, died in 1993. She said of life... The most important thing is to enjoy your life and be happy. That's all that matters. You know, those folks hold two things in common with James Bond. They're all dead. Inevitably, they died. And while they may not have been concerned about eternal life or things in the future, I promise you there came a moment when that was significant right after they died. What God put in place with Adam and Eve was that Adam and Eve should live forever. Please remind people he hasn't changed his mind. Everybody's going to live forever. It's where we live, where we abide, what we experience eternally that's important. God has not changed his plan. And a person can think whatever they want to think, God is still going to do exactly what he intended to do. Can you hear the collision of two philosophies? You know the modern name we put on James Bond and his philosophy of life and all these others who have influenced generations of people? We call it today secular humanism. No place for God. It's all about us, and we need to find self-realization. We need to be all we can be and not care about tomorrow. And folks, that doesn't work. And if you look around at what's going on in our society, and you look at the folks who are trying to find medically or by ingesting something they shouldn't ingest, trying to find happiness, it's not working. There's a huge void in here for so many people, even Christians. And the peace that we so desire is slipping away from us. And it's because the philosophy we live by is not the philosophy taught in Scripture. 
the design that God had is a different design. Let me read to you from Paul's letter to the Philippians. And I want to begin with the 21st verse. And listen very carefully because God is just about to speak to us. Philippians 1, 21 through 26. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. If you look at the 21st verse, he simply says, for me, self-testimony, Paul saying, for me, to live as Christ, to die as gain. John Calvin, when he looked at these verses, said, to live or to die is gain. Either's a blessing. Lots of folks don't think that. Let's talk a minute about to live as Christ. What's that really mean? Well, the one who made us, the one who designed us, knows best about how we function most effectively. He has a design for our whole life. If when we are born, by his grace, we come to know Jesus and we get into the word of God and we start to grow spiritually, we start to understand that that design. And then if we willingly, under the power of the Holy Spirit, are willing to be embraced by that design, we start to change. We're not born into this world looking like God wanted us to look. But the potential, once we experience him, is there for us to be changed and to become more like Jesus. Apostle Paul, we all know his story. A pursuer of Christians wanting to hurt them, wanting to persecute them, even to put them in prison and even kill them. A man who felt very strongly about what he was doing. A man who was a faithful Jew and was trying to stomp out this threatening thing called Christianity. And in the midst of his pursuit of Christians, he's on the Damascus Road, and by grace, God intervenes and puts him on his knees, and God touches him. And God changes him. And suddenly there's with Paul a potential to let Jesus be at the center of his life. And moments before he was humbled, that was not a potential at all. You know whose story that is? That's your story and my story if we know Jesus. He came to us while we were yet sinners and he didn't just die for us. He also sent his Holy Spirit to us, 
And in one way or another, hasn't he put every one of us on our knees? You know what drives you to your knees? On the one hand, it's seeing yourself as you really are and realizing you need a Savior. On the other hand, it's seeing yourself as God sees you. And that's a humbling experience. And it's in that brokenness, which is a positive thing, that there's hope for us. Hope for our eternal life and hope for our life day by day. The change is in here, it's not out here. You can't legislate this kind of change. You can't make laws to enforce this kind of change. It has to come by divine appointment with God touching us and making us new. And then Paul says, for me to live is Christ. What a wonderful way to sum it all up. He says, for me to live is for Jesus to be at the very center of my being. Doesn't that beg a question? Is Jesus at the center of our being? What are we really all about? If we take away all the stuff that James Bond has, what's left? For James Bond, nothing. He's all about that stuff. If we take all of that away and just strip it away from us, what's left? Who are you and who am I? You see, if you know Jesus and you're born again and you have surrendered to his lordship and you start living by his word and you talk with him and you love him, knowing that he already loves you, there's something of substance in here when all that stuff is gone. And what's left is a person who is bonded to Christ. And we start to think a little more like Jesus every day. And we start to behave a little more like Jesus. We're in no danger of perfection. But that becomes a trend in our life. And then we begin to do the things that Jesus did. As I read through the passage and studied it, it dawned on me that there's a central theme. And that central theme is that with Christ in our life, the happiness comes by serving him. The happiness comes and the peace by giving the Holy Spirit freedom to take us wherever he wants to take us. And we're available to him. And we quit telling him what we will and will not do. And we say, Lord, have your way with me. Have your way with me. And when we do that, we are moving into that design that God had for us when he called us to be his. And therein lies the peace and the joy and the happiness of this life. I feel like I could quit right now and just go home. I mean, that's enough. For us to live is Christ. And that's the goal 
that God wants us to seek after every day the rest of our life. When you get up in the morning, say, Lord, here I am. Use me any way you want to. And when we start to live like that, we're starting to realize Christ at the center of our life. Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on and says, but to die is gain. Oh, really? Is that what the tears are all about when there's a death? Is that what all the anxiety is all about when a loved one is infirmed and not going to get well? There's a distinction I think that Paul would make and I certainly make. And that is it's okay to cry. It's okay to be heartbroken when somebody you love is dying, particularly if it's you. But you've got to cry for the right thing. If the person knows Jesus, don't grieve for them. It's gain when they go to be with heaven to heaven to be with him. Absolute gain. Because they're going to experience a new heaven and a new earth. Isn't that going to be something? We already got a beautiful world and he's going to get it back to perfection. Everything in balance. And he's going to fix us. You need some fixing? I got a couple of things on my list. How about you? Have you noticed that gravity is pulling on us? Have you all noticed that? I don't think gravity is going to pull on us anymore. Nothing's going to droop. We're going to be standing upright and we're going to be okay. You can't even imagine what heaven's going to be like. Talking with God face to face. Communion with him. Absolute peace all of the time. Nothing to take that peace away. Nothing to threaten it or challenge it. That's what heaven is. That's gain. So when we cry, let's be honest about what that is. We cry because we're going to miss somebody. And that's okay. You hear? That's okay. But let's not cry for them if they're a Christian. Because Paul has said it very clearly. Well, to live being a Christian with Christ at the center of your life and having confidence in the future, that's not what James Bond's all about. That's not what these other folks I quoted, their lives are all about. It's all about the here and now. And the here and now for you and for me is a precursor to what eternal life's going to be like. We're just in the process and starting to have a foretaste. You understand? There's a question that's raised in 22 through 24. And the question is, what shall I do? Here Paul is in prison. And in a human sense, he really has no choice. It's not a question of whether he lives or dies. He's waiting to hear what the emperor is going to say. But you can go just a step beyond that, and he's waiting to see what God tells the emperor to do. Because that's how that works in real life. 
God is in control of everything. Whether the person is an emperor and secular or whether the person is an emperor and a godly person, it still depends on God. And he orders things the way he wants them. So here Paul is saying, putting all that aside, if it were left up to me, I don't know what I'd do. What should I do? And he starts to struggle with that. And as he starts to struggle with it, he says an interesting thing. He says, you know, if I stay here, there's going to be a fruit from my labor. He says that with confidence. So if he stays here and he lives in Christ, he's going to be serving Christ, and there's going to be a fruit from that serving of Christ. Well, there's so many people in the church today who say, I'm a Christian and have no concept of serving Christ. And yet that ought to be the centerpiece on the table of our life. Of going where he wants, doing what he wants, being what he wants, thinking what he wants, feeling what he wants. And Paul says, I know there's going to be a fruit. And he can say that to the Philippians because they are part of the fruit. He went into a totally atheistic area of Greece told people about Jesus, and the result is a group of people meeting in the city of Philippi who are now the church. That's the fruit of his labors. He goes on to Berea, and he finds people in a synagogue who are uniquely Jews. He begins to share the scriptures with them, and our scriptures tell us in Acts that some of those Jews and some of the Greeks who lived around them, both male and female, came to know Jesus. That's the fruit of his labor. Interesting thing about fruit. <clears throat> we have some berries, bosonberries, that grow wild in our yard in Columbia. And I just love going out and picking them. And Linda makes really good jam out of them. Always there's some fruit on the ground. I can't get out there early enough to get them. The wind will blow or something will happen and the fruit, little purple berries, fall on the ground. Well, you know, when you go out to labor, you're not going to be successful all the time. You're not responsible for success. You're responsible for being available and giving it your very best shot. There are other times that some of those berries that have fallen on the ground, I can pick them up and take them home and If I wash them off, nobody knows where they came from. And they still taste good. There's some others you pick up off the ground that you're sorry you picked them up. Sometimes when you labor for the Lord, you're not going to be successful at all. It's not about us. It's about us being available to him to be used in the way he wants us to be used. Now I want you to think for just a moment about the places you go every week about the places you frequent. Places you don't think much about, like a grocery store and the people you meet in the grocery store, or where you buy your gas, or where you do something else, that is just kind of a mundane part of life. Be assured that in every one of those places there are people who don't know Jesus. Would God use you to share Jesus with one of those folks? And if you were to be used by him, 
the question arises, will you be successful? And the answer is no. You're not going to always be successful. But sometimes you will be. And God just wants you to be available for him to use any way he chooses. I've noticed um, we're getting older. I know that comes as a surprise, but we are. Getting out of bed isn't quite the experience it used to be. Walking down a hall and finding that walls move and try to bump into you. Not being quite as sure-footed when you go up and down steps. I know most of you haven't experienced any of that, but I have. You know what hasn't failed? For most of us, we can still think and speak. And so for most of our life, we can be available to God to speak the good news of Jesus Christ. And age doesn't typically affect that. Got it? You understand? You are already equipped, and so am I, to be used by God. So, why shall, what shall I do? Paul is looking at that, and he's trying to struggle through that, and he's saying, if it were my choice, and it's not, what would I do? If you look down in 25 and 26, you'll see why he's going to do what he does. He says a rather profound thing in 25. He says, convinced of this. Now, he's still in prison, chained to a Roman, waiting to go to trial. And he can say, I am convinced I'm going to be set free. That's a spiritual conviction that's come on this man. And what he's saying is, God's not through with me yet. There's some things that God wants me to do, and I can almost hear Paul saying, and I'm going to get in tune with those things. I'm going to be ready to do what he wants me to do. Hey, folks, God's not through with you yet. Look around the room. If he were through with you, you'd be with him. He's not through with you yet. He has something or some things that he would like you to do. And when you come under conviction that he's not through with you yet, then the next step is to say, Lord, what you want me to do? How would you use me? And then Paul says a really neat thing. He says, you know, it's going to be a benefit to you all, talking to the Philippians, if I do come back. Because it's going to help in the progress that you're making, and it's also going to help bring joy to you. One of the universal things that is in every one of us is we want to be loved. Did you know that? I don't care who you are. You can be one of the meanest spirited people in this world, but you really want to be loved. You just go about it in all the wrong ways. And that's what we want. You know what else we want? Universally, I want peace. To quit fretting. To stop being anxious. To stop being in tension and and stop feeling that tension. Instead, to know that he's in control. And that you're part of that plan. So when you and I 
help others progress spiritually and we contribute to their joy, we experience progressing spiritually and we experience joy. Now, I want you to know, I sat at my desk and said, how am I going to end this? The central theme is we're trying to figure out how to live life and we're looking in the wrong places so often. So we find ourselves struggling to live life to try to be happy and feel good about ourselves. And so often, like James Bond, what we're doing is not going to get us there. The centerpiece is Jesus. The centerpiece is being conformed to the image of Christ. The centerpiece is saying, Lord, here am I, so send me. And folks, when we get down to those essentials and we let that impact our life and go wherever God wants it to go, we will have lived life. And if we don't do that, we will never have lived life the way he intended. Please, this afternoon, get your Bible out. Sit down and look at these verses. Take a look at yourself and say, am I where God wants me to be? Or am I someplace else? Let's pray together. Father, what you have written on these pages is so very profound. What you put on the heart of Paul to say to the Philippians and to us is so appropriate. Help us, I pray, Lord, to come to terms with it individually. And help us to experience the beauty and the peace of what you have for us. For I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.